Today, I'm really honored to be introducing to you Dr. Sami Zubaida. Um, Dr. Sami is uh, Emeritus Professor of Politic- Politics and Sociology at Birkbeck University of London and has held visiting positions in Cairo, Istanbul, Beirut, Aix-en-Provence, Berkeley, Paris, and New York. His research interests include Middle East politics, religion, law, nationalism, food, and culture. Professor Zubaida is a regular contributor to the LMEI's Middle East and London magazine and has published extensively on the Middle East. He's also a professorial research associate of the Food Studies Center at SOAS and has published widely on food and culinary cultures, including the essay, uh, Drink, Meals, and Social Boundaries in Food Consumption in Global Perspectives, and A Taste of Time that he edited with Richard Tapper and Torres Park, as well as co-authoring Food and Politics, uh, Food Politics and Society, excuse me, which is a fantastic reading on food in social theory and how it relates to uh, modern systems today. Um, Dr. Sami Zubaida, um, welcome to Afikra. Uh, very nice to have you. I would like to um, ask you, uh, first of all, Dr. Zubaida, that um, there is a growing interest in the uh, culture and history of uh, food and and food studies in the Middle East, uh, perhaps more so now than ever. And um, from your perspective, um, from the social studies and political studies point of view, um, how do you see that interest in, in connecting um, uh, different parts in the Arab world, but also in connecting the Arab world with its diaspora outside and also the rest of uh, the commun- global community? Well, what we've seen in the last few decades is the increasing interest in food, in public discourse, uh, in all all over the world, in the media, in in uh, uh, in a very uh, kind of gr- a growing interest in in food cultures, uh, in ingredients, in uh, recipes in restaurants in and so as part of that uh, there is of course one of the main areas of uh, food culture in the world is is the middle east uh, or whichever part of it you want to emphasize like the eastern mediterranean or whatever and so this is part part of a much more global uh, phenomenon uh, of food developing as an area of cultural interest as well as of uh, uh, of leisure activity, of uh, hobbies, of uh, media generally, and so on. So, you know, what, what the interest in the Middle East and uh, Middle East food is part of this general world phenomenon. So I wanted to ask you about um, this 
first impression that a lot of people might have of Arab food or Middle Eastern food as being rich. I see this word going, you know, going around a lot. It's it's a rich kitchen. It's a rich tradition. It's a rich culinary legacy, right? And it's often associated with the food of this region, um, whether it's for the Arab-speaking parts, North African, or the wider West Asian uh, region. And you note out the role of, of class, if we are going to uh, look at the, the literal sense of rich, right? Uh, we You note out the role of class and the elite kitchen back in uh, the history, the medieval Islamic history of food, um, in helping shape this richness of textures, of spices and, and technique. Um, I, my personal opinion is that I see traces and I see a lot, not just traces, but I see evidence of that it's still living today in a lot of dishes, uh, in a lot of how a lot of our traditional dishes really um, emphasize this technique of, uh, of stuffing, of rolling and of uh, embellishing it with, uh, with, with a, a complexity of uh, tastes and flavors and textures. Um, do you certainly do you do you necessarily agree that it still lives on today, or has it differed in your opinion uh, today uh, from how it was back in the day? I think it is. Of course, there have been tremendous uh, uh, transformations from medieval times to to the present. You know, in terms of. Uh, uh, empires and the change of empires, of cultures being brought together under empires, of um, uh, trade, of production of foodstuffs. Uh, so in fact, there is a great deal of evolution, of difference from that time. And one of them, I mean, when you look at the sources of medieval Arab cookery, uh, you know, Kitab al-Tabikh and so on from Abbasid times, then you see there is a great emphasis, as you say, the, you use the word rich, and it is rich in the sense of many different ingredients and uh, very liberal use of spices and the multiplicity of spices. Don't forget that spices at that time, many of the spices were rare and expensive and only rich, rich people and aristocracy and ports could afford spices, especially saffron, which was used in great abundance in the recipes that, that we have. But in, in addition to the spices, there were a lot of strong tastes. You know, so you had sugar, for instance, which was also an expensive commodity at that time. Sugar, honey, um, and uh, vinegar. Uh, so, in fact, you had these really strong, harsh tastes. Um, what we see, and this, of course, wasn't just uh, for the Arabs or for the Middle East. That was also true of medieval Europe and, indeed, of the Romans. So, in fact, if you look at the aristocracies and the court systems in Europe, you have very similar, you know, this great uh, accumulation of ingredients and spices and especially the heavy use of spices. And I think what you see happening over the centuries and into the modern period, in the case of Europe, very well documented from about the, from about the 18th century, 
is that there is a kind of civilizing process in which people become much more sensitive to taste, to subtlety, to the taste of the ingredients itself. You know, people like the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, who wrote, who was very critical of this richness and emphasized the purity of taste, of water, of milk, and so on. So this civilizing process is one in which there is much greater uh, emphasis on subtlety and on ingredients tasting what they are, and the rejection of this overuse of spices and strong taste. And they, you see that also happening, not so explicitly, but somewhere like in the Ottoman world, in which you also have a, a less less emphasis on spices and you know more subtlety and of tastes. The other thing that, of course, that has happened since um, is the importation of the American ingredients. So after the discovery of America and American uh, items coming into Europe and the rest of the world, and in particular the tomatoes. So can you imagine Middle Eastern food without tomatoes? And certainly tomato didn't really come into general use very gradually from the late 18th century in the Middle East and uh, was at first rejected as being dangerous and poisonous and it only gradually became accepted uh, in the case of my uh, my home city Baghdad apparently uh, tomato only became fully incorporated in the early 20th century so you can see there is great the tomato made such an enormous difference to the cuisine of the Middle East, of the Mediterranean, and indeed of many other parts of the world. But it wasn't just the tomato, the pepper. So can you imagine India without chili? The chili came from America. Then you have all kinds of beans, you know, the haricot beans that we call fasolia, mm -hmm. uh, also came from America. And so many other ingredients. Um, and so this really transformed uh, the cuisine of many parts of the world, uh, and certainly of the of the Middle East. So, in fact, whereas you may see continuities, as you quite rightly point out, in terms of rolling and stuffing and and all the procedures, uh, there are also great differences, great uh, developments and evolutions. And of course, the other thing is the development of kitchen equipment. You know, sources of heat, stoves, uh, uh, implements, uh, pots and pans, and so on. All these have led to uh, great differences all over the world, not, and certainly in our part of the world. So there you are. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, technology, like you noted out, is is a way in which we can see an example of how um, perhaps... Uh, a tool that was once uh, limited or only within the hands of those who can afford it has now been democratized. And mm. uh, it's, it's you know, we can see how even now techniques and, mm. and, uh, and the culinary terms and ingredients and tools that are used in, uh, in the most professional uh, kitchens of hot cuisines are being somehow 
replicated, um, albeit with perhaps more simpler uh, ways uh, to still be afforded and be, uh, you know, used uh, in in most uh, common kitchens and households. Um, I want to ask you also about um, something that is very interesting, and I I rarely uh, thought about before. Uh, encountering your work on on drinks and the role of drink in in shaping the the meal. Um, now, many has written on food in the region and historically or anthropologically, but rarely is drink really a subject you know that is given much weight. Um, what prompted you to to analyze the role of of drink in food, or what what has really pointed your attention to it? Well, I've always been interested in drink, uh, both as a scholar and as a consumer of drink. So I've always been curious about the historical and cultural diversity of drink and drinking cultures. And uh, the relation to the meal came to me when some years ago there's a movement in Europe and elsewhere for slow food. Um, and, you know, the idea was that in modern life, you know, you have people are eating fast and their fast food is everywhere. And that is a kind of loss of historical historical and social heritage, you know, in which people uh, ate together and ate sociably and uh, uh, with families and with friends and so on. But then when I looked at how people ate historically and at present, the great majority of people, for the great part, ate very fast. You know, that people, uh, even people who ate quite uh, rich meals, uh, would eat them, you know, quite fast. And there wasn't, of course, there were exceptions, but for the most part, that was the case. It wasn't just a, a modern trend that you have fast food. But then when I looked at the exceptions, you know, the meals that were slow, in which there was conviviality, on which there was uh, conversation and so on, most most of these instances are food which are accompanied by drink. Uh, so, in fact, uh, you know, I was uh, struck by um, a kind of contrast between 17th century uh uh, Ottoman and French exchange of ambassadors and the French ambassador in the Ottoman court talked about how he was received in the court and then led to a meal. He sat with the notables and they had this sumptuous food. One, one dish after another came and everybody ate in silence and uh, within an hour they all got up and it's finished. Whereas the Ottoman uh, ambassador in the French court wrote about how wonderful it was to have these long meals with wine and with women being present and uh, all the conversation that went on. And uh, so that is a, obviously that not a general pattern, but it's an indication to some extent of the way in which food that is accompanied by drink led to a greater sort of sociability and conviviality and a, a slower pace of consuming food. Um, 
And you see that in the case of the Middle East, of the Mezza pattern. The Mezza, of course, is not... Um, the Mezza is not uh, itself a meal. You know, the, the concept of Mezza is in, uh, intrinsically connected to drink. You know, it's only, uh, food only becomes a Mezza if it's related to uh, to be accompanied by drink. Uh, but of course, what tends to happen over the over time is that the mezza becomes the meal or becomes an important part of the meal, and that's certainly the case in modern times in in drinking cultures or in drinking areas. Is that the mezza becomes uh, becomes the meal itself? So, and that is also a very good example of uh, conviviality uh, and sociability in eating. So that's what um, that's what led me to interest in drink in relation to food. This is fascinating, Doctor Sami, because um, I I think that it doesn't only change just the pace of the meal, but as you pointed out, it's also uh, perhaps the the way the meal is is shaped, the the size of the portions, um, and the way people people eat or organize their their eating the the frequency over over time as well uh perhaps but also the types of food um can you talk a little bit more about that in, i mean in what way obviously well i can talk about you know the development of this pattern we have a very interesting study by a french historian francois georgeon of the emergence of drink culture in Istanbul in the late 19th century. When he says, you see, uh, previously, uh, taverns and drinking places were, were for the most part rough places of common people uh, and, you know, uh, associated with criminality and violence and so on. And, uh, and uh, rich and uh, normal people didn't drink in the taverns. They drank at home or in their own parties and so on, rather than in the taverns. But what develops, what Georgian was talking about, development in the late 19th century is of a civilized, of civilized uh, mehane, mehane uh, bars uh, in Istanbul, which catered for the new middle classes to the professionals, the bureaucrats, uh, and uh, they developed a kind of uh, drinking uh, drinking culture, what he calls savoir boire, knowing how to drink. Uh, and part of that drinking culture was the development of the uh, of a uh, of a sophisticated pattern of mezza and of mezza items. Um, and also of, of smoking the nargile. Uh, that is another aspect of it. So, in fact, you have here, you know, from a time uh, traditionally when uh, rich and middle-class people drunk at home, if they drunk, uh, whereas the taverns were for the rough people, then you have the development of taverns, which are sophisticated and civilized and part of this civilization was the development of the mezza pattern that's really interesting um so 
in in your view, how does the consumption of alcohol differ in some parts of the Arab-speaking regions? Like, for example, you mentioned Sudan, and you refer to how um, there is some sort of a, a, a dichotomy that happens in in the um, legitimization that happens with with the alcohol consumption, even among religious groups. So you mention here, um, and I quote. Um, in your paper, in parts of Sudan, pious Muslims drink it without associating it with forbidden alcohol. To them, it is liquid bread. And I thought that was fascinating, this idea of regarding a drink like beer as as liquid bread. I mean, it is just fermented <laughs> bread, perhaps, at the end in a liquid form. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I think uh, historically and, and even to the present, you can say the consumption of alcohol uh, you can distinguish between nutritional consumption and uh, leisure consumption, uh, you know, for pleasure. Uh, and in many parts of the world, and certainly with the start of beer making in ancient Iraq, for instance, in Babylonian, Sumerian times, uh, there was that is when beer started to be produced on large scale and widely consumed. And that certainly was nutritional. That was part of the diet, you know, that people drank beer, as well as recreational. Uh, now, in many parts of Africa, that is still the case, including parts of the Sudan, that in fact, you know, uh, beer was not just um, a sort of alcoholic drink for recreation, for pleasure. It was part of the calorie intake. You know, it was an important part of the diet. And that was certainly the case in uh, parts of Sudan. And uh, what I quote there is one anthropological study of a particular part in, of Sudan in which the, the anthropologist asks his uh, informants, you know, how come you are drinking beer and you're a pious Muslim at the same time? Mm. And the answer was, well, you know, this is not... Uh, Hummer, this is bread, you know, this is uh, our, our nutrition. And that is the case, as I say, in many other uh, contexts. Hmm. Well, well, while still on the subject of alcohol, perhaps we can also approach it from uh, an etymological or linguistic perspective. And here I stop at the word Arak. Um, which is used to um, to designate uh, one of the um, spirit drinks, um, perhaps used in Turkey and the Levant region, um, as far as I know. And I'd love to know um, more about how you saw it as an example of how one word really embodies so much about uh, the culture and the society and, and the history and the relationship of, of, of people and their movement throughout time. Well, I think the movement here is the movement of the word, not of the thing. Mm. It's, uh, you see, as you know, Arab, the word Arab is actually sweat. Yeah, so mm -hmm. in fact, it's uh, it's that kind of analogical reference to the process of distillation you know, which is taqtayr, you know, it's like sweat. Mm. So uh, it was called Arab. Now what happened was, you know, Arab then became a term 
general term for distilled spirits in Arabic. And it spread to many parts of the world. I was, first of all, astonished reading the history, part of the history of the British East India Company in India. And in the 18th century, the factors of the East India Company were drinking Arab. I thought, my goodness, how come, you know, they got Arab there? But then I discovered what they called Arab was distilled palm wine. Oh, uh, and on board the on board the ships the, of the, the no this was on land but also on board the ships you have i read subsequently about the development you know at, at one point the navy uh, of the dutch navy the british navy and generally seafaring they were drinking spoiled wine because wine doesn't keep and then apparently somewhere in the far east they discovered the distilled spirit and then they started having distilled spirits on board which eventually became rum but initially the distilled spirit that they developed from java in indonesia and uh, sort of chinese uh, enclaves in south southeast asia uh, was called arab uh, and that was distilled from all kinds of ways you know it's not our, the arab of the middle east as we know it that it was distilled spirit. So at one point, distilled spirit in many parts of the world was called Arab. Uh, so in many ways, it, it's similar to what in Europe became was called Eau de Vie. And Eau de Vie just meant distilled spirit. So there were all kinds of distilled spirits called Eau de Vie. And what that was at one point in, in the Middle East and the further east, that distilled spirit was called Arab. So so it moved from all the words. So we're not talking about the word, yeah. Yeah. So the word itself moved from um you mentioned what what was the starting point of where the word Arab moved? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, starting point was obviously in the Middle East because it's an Arabic word. Mm. And they uh, used it for palm wine first. That was the first recorded mention? I, of I, know, I don't know whether it, um, it's the first that I read about it. You know, it's not the first recorded. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, there were all kinds of distillations from different, as you know, you can distill from so many different things. Anything that ferments you can eventually distill. Um, so anyway, there we are. It's a, it's a kind of cultural export, but mostly in terms of vocabulary rather than the, the thing itself. Yeah. And, uh, and speaking of vocabulary, um, I believe the linguistic part of, uh, or the, the etymological part also uh, is an interest uh, of yours. And um, you've also written about um, how certain words has either originated or is related to uh, the Arabic language. You mentioned a couple of examples like sukkar uh, and burtuqal uh, in relation to Portugal and also itreya. So um can you talk a little bit about that it's fascinating yeah yeah no i they're obviously uh i mean they i was fascinated to see that you know there was a a particular dish in medieval arab cookery 
which was very widespread, uh, uh, called Eskabesh, uh, uh, Sukbaj. It was called right. Sukbaj. Mm-hmm. So Sukbaj uh, was a dish which, you know, the word is from the Persian uh, for vinegar. So it was, it was, for the most part, it was meat that's cooked in vinegar. Um, and vinegar and honey or sugar or sweetener. So, in fact, at its simplest was just meat that was boiled with vinegar and with uh, spices and, and something sweet, sugar or honey. Well, it wasn't sugar at that time. And uh, but that became also quite a sophisticated dish. So you had you know rich, uh, rich versions of it, you know, as well as you know simple version for ordinary people. You know, Al-Jahav, you know, uh, the Abbasid writer, he had this one. Well, he's great. He was really quite modern in his time, and uh, one of his books is called Kitab al-Bukhala. Uh, the Book of Misers, which is a very funny book, because uh, it's all full of anecdotes about how about different misers and how miserly they were and how they uh, saved their money and resources. And a, a lot of it is, of course, about food. And he talks about uh, this group of uh, people from Khorasan who were in Basra. He was living in Basra and how uh, they formed a kind of cooperative. And every week uh, they would buy uh, meat and onions and uh, different vegetables. And then they'd cook a big pot of uh, sukbaj. Uh, and then they'll eat it throughout the week. So they'll start with the onions and then they go on to beans or whatever. And by Friday, they'll eat the meat. Uh, so this was uh, an example of how poor people ate uh, this sukbaj, but of course they were very sophisticated versions of it, you know, with superior ingredients and spices and so on. Now, what then this sukbaj vanishes? You know, we don't know what sukbaj is. We we don't use that term. We don't know this dish. But what I what then developed in Spain was a dish called escabeche. And escabeche is uh, mostly fish that's cooked in vin- that's kept mm-hmm. in vinegar. Uh, now the most typical escabeche in Spain is uh, sardines that are fried and then preserved in a sweet vinegar sauce. But you can get all kinds of other material kept in vinegar or, uh, and called escabeche. Uh, and uh, this, this escabeche uh, in French becomes uh, escabeche, and uh, uh, some people have traced the word aspic to this, uh, to this word, you know, to, to escabeche, which in, oh, in, uh, in turn develops from a sukbaj. And people have also traced the, uh, what do you call it? Um, so aspic, when you, you mean the the preserving food in gelatin or or jelly, right? 
Yeah, no, the the word itself developed, you know, that is right. transferred. Yeah. So the word aspic is uh, uh, some. I'm not sure that's correct, but that's what some writers have said. Have, yeah. have said that the aspect develops mm. from these same words. <clears throat> but other than that, so many of the food materials, especially in Spanish, but also in other European languages derived from the Arabic, as you yourself just mentioned, uh, uh, azukar uh, is from azukar. Olives is acetona. Uh, uh, actually, in, parts of, in one part of Spain, it's acetona, in another part, it's oliva. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and it's the same with oil, uh, aset, uh, azet. Uh, and um, uh, aubergine, uh, which was introduced to Spain by the Arabs, is yes, uh, aubergine. I think is a, is a great form. And of course, the word uh, aubergine, uh, badenchan, uh, uh, was is not really. I mean, it itself came to the Arab world from India. Yeah. So yeah, it was the uh, Arabic adaptation of an Indian word. You know, I think it's brinjal in Indian. Okay, and, and what about Itriya? Itriya is, I think, is really interesting because it challenges that um, notion around the world <laughs> um, and pisses a lot of Italians off that uh, pasta or a word related to pasta has origins somewhere else other than Italy. Uh, would you like to talk about that? Yeah, well, of course, you know, various versions of noodles, uh, of of something that is made from wheat uh, or which is then boiled in and becomes, you know, something like what we now call pasta. I mean, that was quite common throughout. And of course, you know, they were in the Middle East, as you say, Atria is one word, but... Uh, do you know the words don't come to me now? But there's also a Persian word for it. Rashta, and I believe. Rashta was one of them. Yes, certainly. And um, I think what we now call pasta isn't one thing. I mean, there are so many different things we call pasta. You know, apart from spaghetti and macaroni and so on, we also have dumplings. You know, like um, uh, you know the the various. Uh, Italian dumpling pastas, what do you call it? Um, it's common. The word's not coming uh, to ra me. Ravioli, perhaps. Ravioli, or... the ravioli family, yes. Yeah. So you get all this. And you you also get the the layered, the layered pasta. What, what, what do you call it? The Lasagna? Uh, yeah. 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 So you have you have all these things which we call pasta, but of course they were... They had quite different origins and quite different uses. But I think the most important uh, thing of pasta is the development of the dried spaghetti and macaroni. And that is traced to Sicily and to the importation of hard wheat into Sicily by the Arabs. Don't forget, Sicily was also an Arab province at one stage. Uh, but then even when it became when the Arabs were, the Arab rulers were expelled and it became Znoman, many of the Arab uh, 
craftsmen, many of the Arab society remained there in Sicily. Uh, and one of the great uh, uh, geog Arab geographers, Al Idrisi, was based in Sicily. And apparently what he wrote was about the importation of the hard wheat, what we call durum wheat, uh, into Sicily and the way in which this was used in manufacturing uh, what became spaghetti and macaroni. Um, so in fact, uh, the, the Arab connection, the Middle Eastern connection was quite important in the development of that particular genre uh, of what we call pasta, or, you know, the dried pasta that is the most common, spaghetti and macaroni. Uh, and of course, the material uh, that is made of that made the hard from hard wheat into pasta, then also entered into all these dumplings and layered oven dishes and everything else. So interesting. The, I... the idea, the idea that uh, Marco Polo brought brought pasta from Spain is uh, is a real kind of interesting mythology that somehow. Uh, got got established, and uh, you know, poor Marco Polo never claimed that he had done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really interesting because um, I've read in in a couple of sources, and I was I was interested myself in tracing that little bit of history um, of how did the Arabs come in contact with with this type of noodle. Or this type of uh, of uh, you know form of uh, pasta or spaghetti or uh, whether the dumplings and I I believe uh, a couple of sources mentioned it was through the the migration of some Turkic cultures that used to inhabit parts close to China over time over centuries and centuries and they some of them settled in parts of uh, what is now modern day turkey and a little bit of uh, of the levant and syria and through that there was that connection did you ever encounter something like that in your research oh yes yes certainly i mean that's a very important source of uh, transformation of uh, of importations of food items uh, was the 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 Turk, the turkic migration from central asia into the Middle East. I mean, you know, what we call Turkey now, the Turks only got there in, uh, I don't know, 13th century, 12th, 13th century, in large, uh, in various waves that came into Turkey and Persia and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, actually, no, it's even earlier than that. Uh, I haven't got it in my head at the moment. But uh, uh, obviously they brought a, a great many uh, items uh, of food and of food technology uh, into the Middle East. Uh, and a lot of them was to do with the fermentation with different kinds of bread and uh, mm. uh, in including things like the origins of bakla baklava, for instance. Um, oh. You know, the idea of layers, layers of... Uh, of dough. Uh, dough and things in between the layers. Um, so, yeah, that, that this was a very important source of the migration of food, was the Turkic, uh, migra the Turkic waves that uh, came into the Middle East from Central Asia. 
and also into into India. So the Mughals, for instance, were uh, came from Samarkand uh, initially. Uh, so um, yeah, wonderful. One last thing before we move to um, your dish of choice, uh, which I'll reveal in a little bit, um, is I wanted to stop at um, tripe or offals and yeah. relationship to street food and how it relates to the, all the social changes perhaps that happened. Um, yeah. How do you see uh, the development of such um eat, eat, consumption of eating um different parts of the animal um in our parts of the world oh yeah i mean of course it wasn't just in the middle east but everywhere uh what is called offal and what is tripe uh were, were commonly eaten um and especially if they were cheap so they would be eat they'd be market food um, but also of course there's great enthusiasm for them i mean many Many old Iraqis like myself uh, are proud to say that what we called pacha was an, a national dish, you know. And pacha, of course, uh, means uh, awful, but for the most part in Iraq, it meant uh, uh, tripe, meant this, the kind of stomachs and intestines of the of the animal. Uh, which was prepared in all kinds of different ways and was an important market food. And people ate it in, you know, when they are on the move, you know, they are working people in markets. Okay. And, Would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, your single dish of choice? We asked you to pick one dish and, and talk about it. And you went for uh, kushari or kijri, correct? Right. As uh, mm -hmm. Your story will uh, will uh, will tell us. Uh, well, yes. I mean, in my uh, childhood, in my boyhood, in my in our home in in Iraq, we had every Thursday we had for dinner a dish called kitchri, and this kitchri was uh, basically rice and lentils cooked with uh, some tomato paste. And then you, you fried uh, garlic and cumin in lots of butter or ghee and poured it uh, into the boiled rice and lentils and let them cook together. Uh, and then you ate it with yogurt as a sauce uh, and sometimes with fried cheese on top and with some people also fried egg on top. So it was a kind of non-meat dish. Mm. Um, and that was one of my favorite dishes. And I loved the smell, <clears throat> the aroma of garlic and cumin frying that went with it. Mm. And so I remember that very well. And then when I came to England and discovered Indian restaurants, uh, I discovered they had kitri. Some had actually a dish called kitri, which was quite similar, rice and lentils more other with other spices uh, and then i discovered the one a kind of uh, upper class english breakfast dish called uh, kedri which was uh, uh, rice 
also, but without lentils, but with smoked fish into it. And then I realized that uh, this dish was originally Indian, and it traveled uh, obviously to England. It's uh, quite obvious how, you know, the Anglo-Indian elite that then settled in England, uh, you know, had an adaptation of that dish with, with its name. But then what was really amazing is when I went to Egypt, uh, and, you know, even in the 1980s when I first went there, uh, there was something called kejeri, uh, koshari, sorry, koshari, koshari, mm -hmm. which was in the, in the street, it was a street food, you know, people on carts and people would stop there and, and eat this koshari, which was also rice and lentils. Uh, with the addition of fried onions and uh, shatta sauce, you know, hot sauce and so on. And also macaroni. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was fascinated by this. Uh, There's obviously a, there had some connection with the Indian dish, but nobody in Egypt was aware of that. And when I mentioned it, they would reject that it came from <laughs> any connection yeah. with, with <laughs> India. And so I said, well, what is, what's the orig origin of the word, you know, koshari? And they all kinds of theories, including one, one uh, colleague, professor, telling me that it probably comes from the Jewish kosher, uh, which is absurd. <laughs> anyway, then I investigated how, how it may have got there. And then I found, after all kinds of dead uh, Alice, I discovered a, a footnote in a book by uh, Richard Burton, the uh, English traveler who traveled to, who pretended to be a Muslim doctor mm -hmm. and traveled to Mecca and Medina and yeah. wrote a book about his travels in Mecca and Medina. And in a footnote, he, he says that in Suez, this is late 19th century, they were eating this uh, al-Kitri, for breakfast, uh, and uh, then he says, "Well, how did he knew it was Indian?" He says, "Well, how did it get there?" And he realizes it it was carried there by uh, the the pilgrims. Pil pilgrimage trade, you know, from from India into Hejaz uh, and from also into Suez, and uh, then it became a, a popular dish uh, in Suez first, and obviously it then moved to Cairo. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when did this, when did the macaroni go in? I don't know, but uh, one theory is that uh, the macaroni is cheaper than rice and lentils, and uh, yeah. so you know to, the the main thing. Seeing that initially it was a poor man's food, uh, you know, to bulk it out more more calories, and so oh, you it add, still is. Uh, uh, in my last, uh, so I I spent the last three years in Egypt and uh, the ratio of uh, lentil and rice to pasta has significantly diminished. It's almost, it's almost as if you're ordering a dish of pasta with some uh, lentil really? and rice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course uh, it, uh, you know, it speaks to the economic and financial tough times that, yeah. um, the Egyptians are going through. Well, this is really fascinating, Dr. Sami. Uh, thank you so much for that. I want to jump quickly to uh, a fun Q&A and get an idea of what you might be reading or watching right now. It doesn't have to be related to food. 
I used to say I'm very interested in history and sociology of religion, and uh, I'm uh, interested in the common, uh, com- now common uh, theme in public discourse of, of the Abrahamic religions and the Abraham Accords and so on. And so I'm trying to uh, look at the structure of this concept of Abrahamic religion. So I'm uh, reading a lot of, uh, of histories and analyses of the Bible and the Quran. Uh, and all kinds of histories that are related to that and uh, enjoying that. Um, that must uh, be wonderful. On, yeah. Uh, on food, what am I reading on food? Well, I recently read a, a French book on uh, the history, food and culture, about the kind of development of cuisine and the idea of cuisine in France. Uh, what's his name? It's, uh, it's a book that was written in the late 20th century by Revel, a historian called Revel. Oh. Uh, uh, and so culture, culture and cuisine. Okay, if we would ask you to perhaps pick a time period that you would want to go back and, and witness how things were lived back in the day, um, perhaps for your current project on, on religion, which time period would that be? Well, the time period really fascinates me and excites me is the kind of late 19th century in the mid, major Middle Eastern cities of Istanbul, Beirut, uh, the, the period of what we call the Nahva, uh, the, the renaissance of, uh, you know, the, the beginning of modernity, in mm-hmm. the Arab world, and also of the kind of um, the the ideas that were developing in in throughout throughout the Middle East in relation to European modernity, to the French Revolution, to the ideas that came with the French Revolution, uh, I find that the uh, most exciting period, and intellectually and culturally, the kind of diverse and uh, uh, convivial and you know yeah that's that's the period Very rich. yeah okay and what about your uh favorite midnight or day snack of choice difficult i, I often have a light lunch of um of cheddar cheese and apple uh, uh which must be good cheddar cheese in england I'm sure. Oh, well, yes, yes, we have. Uh, I get some very good cheddar cheese. And, and uh, yeah, that's say, one. Yeah. Sorry. yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm just saying that's one one, one snack that uh, I like. What what other? I mean, there's so many snacks that... that it's um, difficult to choose from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And would would it be safe to assume that uh, kushri or kishri is what reminds you most of home? Then, considering your story, it does. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I cook it. Um, I've de- developed a, a fast way of cooking it uh, once a week or once every two weeks, and it's quick, uh, easy, delicious, and very nice with butter and yogurt. Oh, interesting. I, I, I might ask you to uh, uh, send me the recipe <laughs> and to share it. With, with pleasure, with pleasure, of course. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay, we've got one question. Um, yes. Um, so thank you very much for this talk, both of you. Really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I just have a quick question about it, anything on the origins of couscous, um, which is a very well-consumed dish, I think, in North Africa and maybe across the Middle East in general. I, I really was kind of curious on where couscous kind of began, any origin stories um, and things like that. I mean, I, I mean, I couldn't tell you, but I think it's very specific to North Africa. Um, it, it's not, and when when you get couscous in uh, the Eastern Arab world in Mashrok, it's often called Maghrabiya. Uh, so you know, I think the origin is is most most likely and definitely uh, in in the the Arab uh, Maghreb. Um, it was also uh, it's also known in Sicily. In Sicily, they make a very good uh, fish couscous, uh, quite elaborate. But then, of course, there was this close connection between uh, the Maghreb and Sicily, which which continued uh, for a long time. Uh, at one point, it may have been in Spain, uh, but you know, it's not no longer in Spain. But certainly. As far as the Arab East is concerned, I think it, when you get it there, it's really an importation from from the West, from Maghreb. Thank you so much, Dr. Sami, for the question. Thanks, Mona, for uh, for sending in your question. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. And special thanks to you, Dr. Sami Zubaida. This has been a really, really lovely conversation. And I think we covered a lot and we would have still uh, went on if it wasn't for the time. Um, thank you so much again for having uh, for uh, uh, joining us today. Uh, we'd love to have your feedback, everyone, um, on our website. And uh, of course, if you'd like to um, support Afikra in any way, um, uh, check out uh, our website or uh, different social media platforms. Um, this was Salma Siri, uh, your host for tonight for today's uh, Matbakh series uh, with Dr. Sami Zubaida. And uh, have a good night or good morning, good day, everyone. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com slash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.